Welcome everyone back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this beautiful Friday morning by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you on this day of days? I'm excellent, Dave. I'm I'm feeling I'm really, 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 really good. I feel I feel good. Hey, are you're a coffee drinker, right? I am. I am a coffee drinker at this very moment. Do you uh, uh, do you have days when you don't drink coffee? God and you no. You see what happens to you? God no. No, no, no. I've tried that in the past, and God no. No, I feel um, it's like the worst hangover in the absolute world. Really? So that's what. So you're so. Uh, I'm addicted. I am a so drug good. addict. Yes. So I'm just a recent coffee guy, probably the last 10 to 12 years, because a uh, cardiologist thought I had a heart thing early on, and they found out it wasn't a heart thing, so they took me off caffeine for a while, and then they miraculously, you know, forgot to tell me, no, hey, have a cup of coffee now, you're fine. So I started having coffee. And so if the days I don't have coffee, not only do I not have energy, I think we've talked about coffee before, it is a happy drug. It makes you happy. Mm. Do you know this? I mean, not only would you be sluggish, you are not happy without coffee. It is. Well, you know me. I'm, I'm pretty giddy all the time. Um, that's so, kind of true. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, I don't, I don't really have highs and lows. It's all just, uh, just a pure high at all times. Yeah. So, I mean, just coffee is the secret to life. Seriously. It truly is. It truly is. Um, and uh, the secret to also me not feeling hungover every single day of my life. Because if I went without coffee uh, because of my hopeless addiction to it, uh, I would feel that way. How many cups a day for you? Uh, I really only need like two um, to <laughs> avoid the hangover. <laughs> only two. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good uh, for you. You're down to two. It's, yeah, it's... you know, but when I was working my... Um, my my uh, my marketing job in Atlanta. I was drinking maybe five cups of coffee. A day. Holy crap! Yeah. You know that's not good for you. No, that was not ideal. I've cut yeah. back. I've, Could you I've, get to I've sleep at night? It back. Yeah, yeah, no. I, so it's um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's like probably some doctor who's listening to this and being like, "Oh, these are warning signs." Yeah, it wouldn't really affect me like that. I could totally go to sleep after five cups of coffee during the day. Because you take a bunch of like. Sleep. Well, you got to take the downers, right? <laughs> What's the one where everyone fantasizes has these weird hallucinations? I, I, a lot of, a no. lot of. Drugs. Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> no, but the one where they okay, I'll think of it. You know, you know, I'll think about it. When will you think about it? Ambien. There we go. You haven't heard about Ambien story? Okay, let's not. We've already gone three minutes, and people are seriously at the edge of a cliff about to jump off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, UCLA had a bye week. That's why we are talking nonsense here on Friday. Uh, but this Saturday, tomorrow night, uh, the Bruins take on Fresno State at 745, which um, I don't think I'll ever get over having lived on the East Coast because just thinking about 745 makes me just so tired because I've, I'm now conditioned to feel like, oh, God, I've got to be up until 2 in the morning watching that football game. Uh, that's not going to be the case, thank God, uh, that I live uh, in, uh, in, in God's country of uh, California again. Uh, but so late, so very late. Um, and that's the number 13 team in the country now, UCLA, 
on at 745 on the Pac-12 network. Yeah, there's some discussion on the forum about this. Uh, this the, this is all planned before that number thirteen ranking. You got it, and and they there had to be a conversation like, do we really want to do this <laughs> at seven forty five? The number thirteen team in the country. Uh, yeah, that that's bad. That's bad planning, um, and not taking advantage of your market. But you know, what are you gonna do? What yeah, are you I mean, gonna the, do? This would be, I mean, given what Fresno State looks like, too, I mean, this would be like a classic good FS1 type game. I mean, it's still pretty late at night, but at least on a network that people get. Um, yeah. And this is like if, if going forward, if Klyavkov, um does get his wishes of, you know, developing some sort of flex schedule and ability to move things around, this is one that would pretty obviously be moved either earlier or onto a uh, better network. Um, but it is what it is. Um, what it is, is probably going to be a pretty good game. Um, you know, I think, uh, there's been a lot of joking threads on the message board, which I've really, really enjoyed about, um, how all the fans need to not overlook Fresno state. But I think in the process of all this conversation about not overlooking Fresno state, Fresno state has somehow become overrated in our minds, um, where we're talking about them as like, you know, a potential 10-2 and two Mountain West team or something like that. And I really don't think that's the case. I think they're fine. I think they're okay. I think they've got a pretty good defense, and I think they've got a pretty good offense for a Mountain West team. Uh, if UCLA is what we think UCLA is, though, it really shouldn't be that close. Like, it shouldn't be a, a really close game. If you watched the Oregon game and you watched what Oregon did to Ohio State, it was very, very clear that that classic thing that we always talk about that's not true, that a team is holding something back for the next week, was obviously true in those two games. Like, their run game was so much more complex against Ohio State than it was against Fresno State. So much of what they were doing defensively was so much more complex against Ohio State than what they did against Fresno State. They truly didn't break out much, which is, I think, a big part of why Fresno State was able to keep it so close in that game. Fresno State, they're fine. I don't think this should be like a three-point game. Uh, I'm going to differ with you a little bit. I did rewatch uh, the Oregon-Fresno State game. And even understanding what you're saying, uh, I think Fresno State's pretty good. Even despite what Oregon, if you're, you know, the the version of Oregon we saw, which was maybe on the side of vanilla tasting. Um, I, there, there were some basic things about Fresno state that, I, that I liked. Um, they, their defense is very quick to the ball. Uh, they, they swarm. They, they looked fair. They were surprisingly athletic and strong at the point of attack compared to what I would have, expected. I think Fresno, I'll just say this, Fresno State is going to give UCLA its best, the best, the toughest game it's faced so far this year. They're going to be tougher than LSU. I don't disagree. I, so uh, let me, let me just, so LSU should have been a blowout. Like UCLA should have won that by three touchdowns. Um, that they didn't was a combination of like some bad turnovers luck giving up a, a late junk time touchdown, but it was it was a much more significant uh, uh, victory than the final score indicated. I think this one's going to be, again, probably a double-digit win. Like, I think it'll be two touchdowns-ish. Um, 
but it'll be a two touchdown game. It's not going to be what should have been a four touchdown game or whatever that it should have been against LSU. Um, I think Fresno State's tougher than LSU. I think they're better composed on both sides of the ball and very obviously from uh, what I've seen of them so far, much better coached. Um, like what they're doing, and a better and a better court, better quarterback too. Yeah, Jay Kaner and Jay Kaner is not so. Um, uh, what, what's the guy's name? Max Johnson uh, against LSU. I think he has some ability and some talent, but he was still very raw, um, very new to um, playing college football. Jay Kaner's played a lot of games now, um, and he has the look of a guy who's not going to be easily rattled. Um, and the, the the Achilles heel for Fresno State, and it's going to be dependent on scheme, is how quickly they can get the ball out. Because that offensive line scares me if I'm a Fresno State fan. Um, they're not very good. Uh, their left tackle, um, he's a big dude, uh, okay in the run game, but he can be had. And Mitchell Agude against him should, he should be had. Um, like th- This could be a multi-sack game for Agude. Um, and Alex Akingbalu, I mean, we liked him okay at UCLA, um, but he's their starting right tackle, um, and he's not great. And their interior guys, um, two of them are new starters. Um, so I'm not sold on that offensive line. I think it's going to be dependent on Hayner getting the ball out pretty quick. Um, if Cave, if Caven Thibodeau had been healthy for that entire game, he would have had multiple sacks against Fresno State. He was tearing them up at the start of that game. That was a big part of why they had um, – that significant lead that then got taken out. Um, so I would anticipate UCLA actually getting into the backfield pretty quickly. And it's going to be, okay, how much does Fresno State adjust their scheme? How much do they go to just pure quick passing game? Um, which they have, uh, they've got the ability to do. It's just, again, UCLA's defense has been really good against that type of stuff so far this year, where they've just gotten up quickly, everyone playing forward. Um, and I, I don't know. I think they're kind of designed to take on what Fresno State will likely try to do in this game. So, yeah, Hayner's pretty good. I don't think he'll be as easily rattled as Johnson was, um, but I, I'm just not sure it's going to matter all that much. Huh. Oh, yeah. I mean, I basically agree. I just think uh, you were talking about, we were talking about how there just aren't great quarterbacks in the Pac-12 and among UCLA's opponents this year. I think Hayner's going to be one of the better quarterbacks UCLA faces. I think yeah, easily, easily top half. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be an interesting challenge. I think if Fresno state's offensive line was better, I'd be um, much more concerned. I, I just, I don't know if they're going to be able to stop UCLA's four, let alone the kind of exotic and interesting blitzes that UCLA is going to send at them. Um, so that's, that's probably the concern if I'm, if I was looking at it from a Fresno state perspective, Defensively, I think it'll be interesting. Um, those Fresno State defensive tackles are big. Um, I don't know how good they are. Um, they've got some athleticism, I think, at linebacker and in the secondary. Um, you know, it, it's it's a typical Fresno State situation where um, they have uh, you know some power five guys throughout the throughout the two deep. Um, but again, I think. UCLA has shown enough so far this year that you can be reasonably confident the offensive line is going to be able to open up holes against that defensive front. Yeah, I mean, for for me, Dave, the key to UCLA to this game to UCLA season is if any opposing defense can stop or limit UCLA's running game. If if there's any defense out there that can do that, then they have a chance. If they can't. Everything everything keys off that. They do the run action with the passing game. The defense can 
doesn't have to be on the field too much. It won't tire out. It can still play its attacking style. It's all about whether UCLA can keep running the ball. And it's not necessarily, you know, the way UCLA's running game is designed. Even if you think, like, let's say Fresno State can limit UCLA in its running game in the first quarter and a half, the the it's designed to wear you down. And any team that's going to have a chance to beat UCLA is going to have to continue to limit UCLA's running game through the second half or get six turnovers. But that's what it's going to have to do. And you're saying that you don't see Fresno State's running defense being able to do that. Yeah, I think they'll be uh, maybe more successful than Hawaii or LSU were. Um, but I don't know. We're talking about a difference of degrees. I don't see them shutting UCLA's run offense down. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know if any team's going to be able to fully do that this year. And if they're not able to do it, it's, I mean, just the, the idea of uh, Zach Charbonnet and Britton Brown just continuing to pound against that defense for four full quarters. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's the, the circumstances that it would require for Fresno State to be in like a, a very close one score game or potentially even win this game. It requires taking away every single strength of UCLA um, because I think, once again, UCLA's strengths are well-matched against, um, you know, what Fresno State technically does pretty well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, whatever. Fresno State's pretty good. Um, but, you know, it's the kind of thing where UCLA, I think, is even maybe a little bit better than they've um, than the final scores have indicated so far. I think they're a bit, bit better than the odds makers are thinking right now. You know my favorite UCLA stat so far, I guess because we've been in a desert for so long, is the 1.6 yards per opponent's rush attempt. 1.6. That That is just absolutely fantastic because... God, it's so funny how our brain blocks out things that we don't want to remember. But do you remember so many years with those defenses where other teams would run the ball and they would just gash for six yards or the entire opposing offensive line? You'd think UCLA had stopped them, but it would just fall forward for four yards. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not happening this year so far. That's the thing that is just so singularly impressive to me, 1.6 and I, obviously, they're not going to probably keep that um, <laughs> that average, but it's an indication that they have a good rushing defense. Yeah, and I would say uh, it goes beyond just like the pure rushing defense. It's a it's a factor of the aggression and um, the all eleven kind of getting forward on the snap on so many plays. It was most obvious against Hawaii, um, but. It's not just the way they're stopping the run. It's how they're stopping all of the stuff that's like pseudo run game. Like they're crushing screens. Um, like the the way they defended against those Hawaii screens, I think is indicative of what they're going to do to, um, you know, Mountain West level talent. Um, and I think most of that offensive line in particular is Mountain West level uh, for Fresno State. Um, they're going to be able to get up and shut that stuff down. Um pretty aggressively um and when you're doing that obviously you open yourself up to um you know deep play action and one-on-one -on -one stuff down the field and they're gonna give up some big plays it's just a question in this game in particular 
whether Fresno State's going to be able to protect long enough to allow time for those big plays to develop. Um, and yeah, if Fresno State wins a bunch of one-on-ones downfield off of, um, you know, Jay Kaner throwing it up and just hoping for the best, then, you know, that can happen. Uh, but the way UCLA so far has just uh, absolutely crushed other teams' short game, um, it's just it, it it puts a lot of pressure on an offense uh, to to complete some lower percentage of throws downfield. Yeah, and what you know, what's kind of uh, you know, most of the time here at Bruno Part Online, we don't have a lot of respect for uh, national pundits. They kind of either are, are late to the bandwagon when the bandwagon's legit or, or way too early because they're just, they're just overhyping. Right. Um, but I, I found it, I found it kind of interesting. There was a story that 24 seven did about breakout players so far this season. And of course, Zach Charbonnet is the obvious one, but Mitchell Agude was on that list, which was kind of impressive. It's almost like, you know, I got to find that story. I I'm talking about how impressive this one writer was. That they actually watched the UCLA. I guess everyone did watch the UCLA LSU game, <laughs> unlike this weekend when they won't watch the Fresno State game. But Mitchell Agude is is like you've been talking about him. He's he's kind of a scary good guy. I, I mean, even when he his name isn't mentioned, for those of you if you want to watch a a really fun time of isolating on someone watch Mitchell Agudi and just watch him play after play, just isolate on him because he does some stuff. Even if he, even if the, the play is going away from him, he does some stuff that make you go, Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he beats his man like a gong, like 50% of the time, like yeah. just like a gong. Um, yeah. And it's, it's like almost purely a function of luck and which way the play is going that he doesn't have like four or five sacks already this season. Yeah, um, like he he's going to have a game this year where he has like three sacks like that's going to happen the way he's playing right now. Um, it's just it just hasn't quite gone his way, but he's still making just such a huge impact. He's averaging like in his UCLA career, like a forced fumble every other game. Um, he, he's now leading. He's now the leader. The UCLA, I think it was right. They. All-time UCLA leader for forced fumbles. It's it, no, it's freaky. Like his his in a year like, and a half, the way the he program. swings his hands at the ball, like it's just he's he's got a gift for that. Um, he's he plays like a very angry man. Um, it's it's fun to watch him. Yeah, if I can recommend uh, anything, uh, just isolate on him. Watch him for like a good quarter of this game. I think it'll be a lot of fun for you out there. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's been a stud. Um, one guy I just want to shout out when we're talking about guys to isolate on, whenever Martel Irby comes in the game, guys, uh, whenever you see him out there, just watch him for a little bit. Yeah. He's all yep. over the place. He's doing yep. all kinds of stuff. He's a he's lot gonna, I think even though he's pretty much third string at that striker position, I, I think by next season, he's going to probably overtake uh, Williams and and move into that starting spot. Yeah, because he's got that same kind of Quantrez Knight mindset. Uh, yeah. Maybe even, maybe even a tad more aggressive. Remember uh, in high school, his high school film playing, he played safety, and he was a huge hitter, yeah. obviously. And you know what? I want to give a shout-out. It's 24-7 writer is Chris Hummer, who actually wrote, if you didn't see the story, early breakout players, and he, and he actually talks about Mitchell Goody, which is pretty great, I think, that actually watching the game. So good job, Chris. Good job, Chris. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so this, and, you know, 
while we're shouting guys out, Bill Connolly made this point on Twitter, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, UCLA suddenly has dudes at a level that they really haven't had dudes in, uh, I don't know, probably since early Mora, uh, particularly on defense. Like when you're Mitchell Agude, Quantra's Knight, Quentin Lake against LSU. Um, just the way these guys look, um, they just, you know, it looks like, okay, those are the guys that should be sprinkled into a top-tier defense. Um, and Otito Bonia, I mean, he's not he's not going to put up the stats that you would, um, you know, uh, see from, like, you know, edge rushers or that sort of thing. He's been so good so far this year. Um up the middle, and uh, we've talked about he's completely changed his body. Looks like an NFL player now, um, but just the, the the amount of dudes, and that's just defensively. But like Zach Charbonnet is a running back where I think we talked about it last week. But like I, last comp for me would be Miles Jack as a running back, um, where you know that combination of speed and power. But even that's probably not quite right. Maybe you go back to Deshaun Foster. I don't know. Um, but he's been absolutely studly, um, and they've just got these guys all over the place now, um, which is, uh, you know, I mean, as throw a mea culpa out there, uh, testament to the development, um, and also the, uh, work in the transfer portal, uh, for Chip Kelly. So, um, since, since we don't have to stay focused on Fresno State, um, because, you know, we're not playing the games. Uh, does Alec Anderson have a chance to go in the in the draft, do you think? And how high would he go? Tracy, I'm not looking ahead. I'm not looking past <laughs> Fresno State. Oh my um, God. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a draft Nick at all. Um, uh, he's certainly played very well so far this year, particularly against the run. Um, he's been one of their better run blockers I've seen so far. Um I don't know about him in pass protection still. Um, LSU certainly got some edge rush against him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's been solid. Um, I, I think the strength of that offensive line so far has really been Paul Gratton for me. Um, but Alec Anderson's been good. I would say more than likely he's back again for another year and maybe sliding over to left side if uh, if Sean Ryan does what's expected and leaves. Um, but... Certainly a possibility if he keeps playing well, which I think he has so far. So that's, if we're looking down, you know, over the horizon to next season, which, you know, we all like to do, right? Um, so much is about the offensive line. So let's say it loses Sean Ryan, keeps Alec Anderson, loses Paul Gratton. But then it's been rotating at guard among starters. You'd have to say Duke Clemens... Uh, you could not see, you would think Antonio Maffi would come back, uh, John Gaines. So it has a lot of experience interior. Sam Razo would still have a year, a super senior year. Um, and then you think they'd have to go into the portal and there'd have to be some transfer offensive lineman who, who saw what Paul Gratton did and just see what this offensive line does. So every year when you're trying to project whether they'll be good the next year it's to me it's just every the shorthand is to look at whether you have a returning quarterback but for me it's what's the offensive line the returning offensive line so i know getting way ahead of ourselves but 
I'm just always intrigued by the offensive line, especially now because remember those years where they didn't have a lot of great offensive linemen and then the next year they'd lose a bunch of guys and it was a complete unknown almost every year. Like, what are they going to do? Who's, who's even a candidate to be a starter? And that's not the case anymore. So that's kind of fun. It is fun. Um, and I think a huge thing, I mean, one big need is get a tackle. Um, and, you know, yeah. make it so that there's another year of development for all those young but promising tackles that UCLA has um, kind of waiting in the wings. Um, that, I think, is essential. But, yeah, I mean, this offensive line, um, what they've done so far this year, I mean, it's pretty obvious projecting ahead. They're going to be – they are the strength of this offense. Um, you know, running backs can be great, but they're not, you know, they're not doing it alone. And – the, the holes that Zach Charbonnet has had to run through have made it so that he's got a full head of steam when he gets to the second level and he's able to do his, you know, breaking through tacklers and the whole thing. But if he was getting, you know, defensive line hands on him every single time he ran through the line, we wouldn't be seeing these spectacular, you know, long runs into the uh, deep into the defensive secondary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the offensive line has been studly so far. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, so so. Okay, so what's your what's your final prediction for Fresno State? Like, what are you thinking? Because you're not you're not seemingly on board with my 17 point prediction. Yeah, I'm probably a shade. I'll I'll go for. I'll go for like a 13 point win. Um, so, so you're still going covering. You're still covering. I, I still cover. What's the line? The line is I think it's 11 right now. Yeah, I think it's going to be close. I think it will be right about that 13 point, right about 13 points. So let's say I'll go with 30, 31-18. How about that? Okay. What, was your, what was your score prediction? I went 38-21. Okay. You know what? They Yeah, I, I like both. Right in that. So still a cover, I think. Yeah, a cover. Yeah. Um, the uh, one factor that we haven't mentioned at all and haven't even literally mentioned his name, uh, which is interesting because he's the quarterback of the football team, uh, Dorian oh, yeah. Thompson-Robinson. Um, Fresno State may be able to limit the running game a little bit more than LSU and Hawaii, which will put, I would say, particularly early in the game, potentially a bit more of the onus on Dorian Thompson-Robinson to make plays. Uh, so far this year, most of what he's been asked to do is not make mistakes, which he's been very good at. Um but he hasn't, you know, really made a ton of uh, great plays. It's been, you know, kind of open throws based on play action. He might have to make plays in passing downs. He might have to make throws where Fresno State is dropping seven into coverage or eight into coverage. And that's, you know, uh, maybe a good, this will be a good workout for him uh, to see if he can do that. Because LSU really didn't force it. Uh, Hawaii didn't force it at all. Um, but this one might force the ball into his hands a little bit more um, and force him to do things uh, both in the run and uh, throwing the ball. Because Fresno State's also, if there's a weakness schematically in their version of a 4-2-5, it's that um, they can be uh, susceptible to quarterback runs. Um, they were last year, uh, showed a little bit of it so far this year too. Um, so Dorian could... Make some more plays with his legs than he's had to do so far this year, but I think um, also he might be able to. He might have to throw a little bit more um, than he's had to do so far this year, especially on passing downs. So that'll be something to watch for. Can he make some, you know, throws into some decently tight windows? Um, you know, can he make plays based off of reading his progressions? The whole thing. 
because this will be probably the first test of that this year. Yeah. Um, if we if we just review so far Dorian's performance, like first game, not a good first half. Would you say he improved in the second half of that game? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and then against LSU, what level would you put the first half performance? Uh, it was the first quarter was just bad. Um, right. And then he got better in the second quarter. I, I think I graded the whole thing out at B minus, which seems about right. I think his second half was like solid B plus, A minus. I think the first half as a whole was probably C minus, D plus, something like that. Okay. So I don't know if it's a pattern. And I don't know if it's just the process, you know, of him getting back into the swing of, you know, the season. But he, he's shown like a little bit of uh, considerable inconsistency to start a game. Uh, and then has had, uh, you know, pretty decent second halves in the first two games. Um, I, if he puts together, and UCLA's had two good wins. He puts together a, a more complete game. That's kind of what we're, you know, we're all kind of looking for here. Not that he's just, you know, reacting with run action off of UCLA's running game, but that he is a weapon from the beginning of the game, and he's consistent. We saw that a few times last year. Um, and I think what kind of keys him in is when he's able to run. It seems in the second half against LSU, he, he ran the ball a little bit more, and he was in a rhythm throwing the ball better. I think he needs some runs. Um, this is based on almost no data. Maybe Chris Osgood should... Should go by court or by half of of uh, DTR's career when he runs the ball. Does he throw the ball? Is he more efficient throwing the ball? It seems like that kind of gets him in a rhythm. So I agree. I, I think UCLA is going to have to get him running ball a little initially from the beginning of this game. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, it certainly proved true against LSU. Um, when he started doing those little lead runs with the running back, that that uh, kind of got him going a little bit more. So maybe there is some linkage there. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this could be a good game for him to maybe get going a little bit earlier. Um, Tracy, in other news. Yes, Dave. Uh, USC, um, sadly, um, fired Clay Helton. I think unjustified, frankly. Um are you going to keep this going on this podcast? I don't know. I think I'm going to keep it going forever. Uh, I think I'm going to be like Clay Helton's biographer at this point. But just for the sake of this podcast, you might know what the people who are getting fooled by your tweets are not listening to this podcast. So actually what's shocking. So is Dave, a few, a, few UC, <laughs> a few UCLA fans have responded to those seriously as well. Like, not even continuing the joke, but, like, do you really think those are good options for USC? And I'm like, oh, wow, you're not getting this on several levels. Um, who, who was there? What was the guy who, I mean, I know there were some, <coughs> you'd say something, someone would respond. Who engaged, was there, what was the record for who engaged you the most? 
in your trolling. So I've done this. I've done this at periods for like several years. Um, there was <laughs> yes. somebody who went through like no joke. I think it was when um, I was making the case for Clay Helton to be retained two or three years ago, who went through like eight or nine quote tweet barrages from me and then i finally quit because i'm like this is this is i'm being an asshole like this is sad i should not i'm neglecting i'm neglecting my children i'm (laughs) neglecting my children to troll this person with like 30 followers on twitter what am i doing with my life right now because it's one thing if it's like a funny joke and people are enjoying it and it's another thing where it's like i i've gone so far down the rabbit hole that there's actually no purpose to what i'm doing right now yeah. yeah, except just personal enjoyment. Yeah, but that's where it gets into like sadism, and I'm not in it for the sadism. I'm in it for the communal enjoyment of uh, a little bit of uh, you know, a little bit of Schadenfreude. Because <laughs> um, we all we all enjoy that. There's some USC fans who are enjoying it. Um, so are anyway, there? Yeah, no, there there's some who really really enjoy it. They think it's very oh funny. much respect to them. Then. Yeah. Um, so I guess my point is here. Uh, Clay Helton is gone. Uh, USC is in the market for a new head coach, which is always a time of, again, much joy in the UCLA fan base because it's kind of funny to watch them fumble around and potentially screw it up. Uh, But also, you know, a little bit of fear, a little bit of... uh, Because USC always has that um, uh, Death Star under construction feel to it. Um, and you know, if the Death Star, if the battle station becomes fully operational with say an Urban Meyer or whoever the next Pete Carroll is or what have you, uh, then that is obviously something that lurks in the back of, uh, the fans mind for UCLA. So it should be a fun few months, I think. Yeah. uh, Have we ever experienced not, I mean, a UCLA coaching hire or any program that UCLA is particularly familiar with where it's been a three month process because this is kind of, this is kind of new ground. As we've all know, whenever a coaching search lasts beyond damn, the cutoff could be like two weeks, no matter what it's a cacophony locally and nationally of people saying, they screwed the pooch on this hire. Well, if it's over two weeks, the, the pooch has been screwed. Right? Well, and that was so, the narrative around UCLA when they were hiring Mick Cronin because Alford was fired in December. Um, and it was, yep. you know, two and a half, three months before uh, Mick Cronin got hired. And throughout that period, it was a lot of twists and turns. Uh, a lot of John Calipari or whoever, um, and uh, it really was taking a lot of twists and turns, um, and uh, they ended up with a good hire. Uh, now, a lot of times with a process that long, you don't end up with a good hire. Uh, you can often end up with something where you've offered and been denied or you know whatever from several of your top candidates, and then you end up with you know whoever wants it at the end. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to hear how buttoned up it is, you know, how much real stuff gets leaked out um, and uh, whether the job still has the cachet that I think a lot of USC fans think it does. And frankly, a lot of just general fans think it does because we've seen now um, several straight processes where I think we're blaming a lot of it on that USC country club atmosphere, why they hired, you know, Lane Kiffin and then Steve Sarkeesian and then Clay Helton. Um, 
But the reality is it might also be due to some lack of interest or something rubs top candidates wrong during the course of the process. And will that really change under Mike Bone? I guess we'll see. Yeah, as we all know, we're all very familiar with. Uh, there are so uh, there are so many things that come into play. There are coaches who are trying to improve, improve their current contract by feigning interest or maybe have some interest. And, you know, the byproduct is that they're going to get more money out of the athletic department where they currently work. But that might be their number one intention. Um, there are there are bound to be so many twists and turns with this. And uh, the, the USC fan community is going to get put through a lot um, over the next three months of rumors about this guy, rumors about Urban Meyer, rumors about, I mean, we're already setting the stage with all the rumors that came out about Urban Meyer. Um, who was it? There was some national pundit that said he had heard Urban Meyer's interest in the job. Um, there's rumors about James Franklin. Um, we are going to be hearing all this. And like someone from a James Franklin situation, it only behooves him right? Uh, is there really any downside that much to having his name out there in conjunction with the USC job? I, I mean... Yeah, you know, he's going to uh, get a big fat raise. He'll get a big raise. So it only helps. So it's sorting through all that for the next three months. And we all know that, you know, the university can talk to a coach's representative, you know, in a clandestine manner way before the season's over. But that's usually kind of at the end of a season, you know, and they're saying, you know, call me in three weeks after we play our bowl game. But yeah, we're interested right now. Uh, there I'm, I'm not, I'm not really that comfortable knowing what happens when it's uh, over a three month process. I would say when you're at the start of a season like this, a coach's representative are, are not legitimately probably putting out too much interest, but are going to wait until close to the end of the season. Um, so, there's a lot to sift through that, and it's going to be, there are going to be a lot of twists and turns, I, I'd have to say. Um, the big question for UCLA fans, and you have to kind of detach yourself in, in answering this question, is it better for UCLA if USC is an elite program or not? Mm. What do you think, Dave? Um, I would say not. Um, I, I think there's this argument uh, throughout Pac-12 circles from like generic Pac-12 fans that, which don't exist, by the way, um, but from generic Pac-12 fans that, and basically it's USC fans who are just masking themselves, um, that USC needs to be good for the conference to be good. And there are so many data points throughout history that prove that false. USC is usually good, but they're not the necessary item to make the conference good. Um, generally, what makes the conference good, if you go through the data historically, is one of the like top end but middle tier powers. Like for that, basically what I mean is everyone under USC, there needs to be strength with ASU and there needs to be strength with UCLA. Um, those are the two programs that probably most line up with the conference being good, like the top, the moments where the conference is best. Um, 
And so that's just the league generally. For UCLA, I mean, look at the best periods for UCLA. Yeah, the 80s, USC was decent, but that wasn't their top-tier period. That was the 70s. And UCLA was down in the 70s, I mean, compared to where they were in the 50s and where they got to in the 80s. Um, and UCLA was really good in the late 90s. Um, USC went through its maybe its worst period then. And then Jim Mora had a good run in the early uh, 2010s when USC was uh, kind of fumbling around with Kiffin and Sark. So, no, I don't think a good USC um, is necessary for UCLA to be good or is very good for UCLA. The last time USC was, like, at its peak power was the period that almost completely crushed the life out of the UCLA football program, which was 2001 to 2009. Um, And, uh, no, I don't think any UCLA fan should be wanting the return of that ever. Would you say, uh, let's just, um, let's just kind of hypothesize that UCLA going forward is a, is a good program, like top 10 to 15, almost consistently. Is it, it's, uh, I, I get what you're saying that USC being down is more beneficial to UCLA, but uh, if UCLA and USC are both strong programs, doesn't that also kind of work in UCLA's favor? Isn't that still, I mean, I, I know what you're saying, what's best, but isn't this still pretty good in that scenario? Now, of course, if USC is really good and UCLA is bad, yeah, well, yeah, that's not good. But if both programs are good, that's still positive, right? That's no, still disagree. helps I, I think UCLA. A, a situation okay. where USC is bad or even just bad like they were under Clay Helton is best for UCLA because yeah, yeah. It, yeah. In, in that scenario um, where UCLA is actually good, uh, they can actually start to win uh, market share from USC in recruiting, um, in attention, and all that kind of crap. Uh, the same way Oregon has. I mean, look at, look at how Oregon has taken advantage of down USC. If UCLA hadn't been such a cluster the last six years or whatever, they would have been the ones taking advantage of that. Um, and they weren't, so Oregon took advantage of both USC and UCLA. Um, but no, you it's it's not quite zero-sum, but it is to an extent. Um, UCLA, when it's really good, can take advantage of USC. Um, it's not like there's just some level of recruits that are just, oh, we're never going to consider UCLA and we would only go to USC. Oregon has disproven that. Um, hell, hell, all the national powers who keep rating LA for quarterbacks and running backs have disproven that. Um, no, I, I think UCLA, you want a, a pretty down USC. Um, I think you could make a case that both can be good at the same time, but in an ideal world, no, you want you want USC down. Um. I think we really haven't seen UCLA and USC good over a course of like just a few years. We no. really don't even know. We don't even know what that could do. I raise the national profile of UCLA and USC, the Pac-12 benefit nationally in recruiting. We really don't know the impact it could have because UCLA and USC have both screwed the pooch in their program so much in the last 20 years besides Pete Carroll and three years of Mora and one year of Carl Durrell, maybe. Oof, um, not even one year. Yeah, I, I threw that in. Um, yeah. 
we haven't seen it. So it's kind of like we're speculating, but we really don't know what that could do. Like if the UCLA-USC game is literally number two versus number four, and it's maybe deciding who's going to get in the college football playoff, we have no idea what that could be like. Yeah, and the the reality might be that it truly is to, to have that for an extended period of time, not just for a year or two, um, is actually very hard because uh, recruiting California, recruiting LA, and getting the top tier guys that you need to sustain your program at either UCLA or USC, maybe there truly isn't quite enough to make both of them really, really good at the same time. Um, you know, so there might be historical recruiting reasons why that hasn't happened and why it maybe is very, very hard for that to happen. I think for it to happen also, uh, UCLA and USC both need to have good coaches at the same time. And uh, if we're looking at a reason for why this hasn't happened in the last, I don't know, 40 years, uh, that, that, right there is, that, that right there could be it. Because they didn't line up even a Mike Riley against Pete Carroll. They lined up Carl Durrell and their, then Rick Neuheisel. Um, that's, not, that's, that's going to a, a gunfight with a knife. Um, yeah. And when Mora was doing his thing, it was, um, you know, the, the idiot brothers, Kiffin and Sarkeesian. Um, so it's just, and then you had uh, Clay Helton and um, uh, what we'll refer to as uh, Under Armour Chip Kelly uh, engaged in a pillow fight for four years where they were basically ignoring that the other existed and also ignoring uh, their recruiting responsibilities. So um, we just haven't seen it. Now, now that we have Visor Chip Kelly back at UCLA... Um, it's BV. US- it's BV before Visor, and yes. AV after. Yes. Visor. Now that we have Nike branded Chip Kelly back, um, and USC maybe hires somebody good, we might finally see it. Like we might finally see it over the next three or four years. What it looks like when both schools have good coaching, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see it. I just don't know that it'll be best for UCLA. Here's here's the thing too that's key for for USC. And I haven't seen it mentioned that much. Um, USC does have the potential, I think, to be a perennial college football power. The thing that's been holding the back is coaching. Yes. I mean, they get good coaching. They have a good product on the field. They're going to recruit at a very high level. The other thing, though, that would get you to being consistently ranked 10 to 15, let's say. To get you in the stratosphere of Alabama, Oklahoma, Clemson, Ohio State, um, you need like 25 analysts. You need 15 recruiting. I mean, not only is USC going to have to pay money for the head coach, it's going to have to just figure all this money. They're going to have to buy out the coach that they're going to hire if he's at an existing situation. They're gonna have to pay Clay Helton's buyout, which I thought it was 10 million, but I think some people have said it's more than that. Um, They're gonna have to pay uh, six to $8 million a year in his contract. They're gonna have to pay for an expensive coaching staff. And that's just the immediate coaching staff. And then really, if they're gonna be, if they're gonna take it to that level, they're going to have to fork out a crap load of money to go the Alabama route with 30 analysts or how many analysts Alabama has. That's a hell of a financial commitment to make. That's the biggest question for me in this. 
Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that difficult for USC to become a top 15 program. I mean, they have been under Clay Helton pretty much. I mean, or not far. But to get into that stratosphere, it's going to take a different commitment, monetary commitment than we've seen from USC in the past. Yeah, I think for everyone out there, a good um, a good way to think about USC's football program is basically UCLA's basketball program throughout like the 90s and the 2000s where they have the pedigree of a top-tier college football power, but they also have the arrogance of that, um, and they just believe that because they are USC, they should be very good, and because they are USC, people should be dying to take that job and the whole thing. Um, and I don't, and it, it doesn't quite translate. Now, all it will take is somebody over there, and maybe it's Mike Bone, um, driving all of their boosters and saying, look, we're not that. We need to get that back. We need to push again. And, you know, that's been the state of UCLA athletics now for the last decade, I would say, where they've, you know, finally shown a commitment to all of that stuff again. Uh, but I think USC is still operating in kind of that 90s, 2000s um, UCLA land where uh, they think they should be good because they're USC, where the reality is they're not anymore. Um, and so uh, and, that's and so that's much of it will come. So, so much will come down to money. Um, whether USC will spend its athletic department will spend that much on its football program while the rest of the university is on orders to cut back fi financially, like departments are cutting back given that they've you know, had an outlay. I don't even know how much over a billion dollars in, in settling suits and things. Um, how that plays among the USC uh, university side, the academic side, I, I don't, I really don't know, but something's, uh, whether USC athletic department is gonna be able to do that and take the backlash that it gets from it, or it won't is, is the issue. Uh, most, a lot of people I know say that US, this, they just assume, even USC people that I know, they assume the the athletic department is going to do that and outlay the cash and take the backlash, but I, I don't know. I'm unsure. Um, yeah. So that's we probably spent. You know, there were plenty of people complaining about everyone talking about the USC job on our forum. So oh, who cares? Who cares? Okay. Yeah. Right. Um. One other thing, kind of fun that UCLA went in and and. <laughs> offered USC's committed quarterback, Devin Brown, which is kind of an, you know, uh, an opportune thing to do. USC's obviously a lot of uncertainty. Um, you can bet that Graham Harrell, the offensive coordinator, will not be back at USC. Um, so, I mean, his fate is up in the air for him. So it's a that's a great offer. I, I like him. I think he's a good player. Um, there's some, you know, there's uh, some people in Utah who might put some pressure on him to go to UCLA, namely his high school teammate Harrison Taggart, who has some crystal balls to UCLA. Uh, they're playing American Fork uh, this week, um, which is the home of Carson Ryan, a tight end commitment at UCLA. So. And Utah's kind of a small, that small kind of football high school community. They all know each other very well. So 
that will be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm sure he would not make any decision until he finds out who USC hires and who's the offensive coordinator. But kind of kind of a fun offer. Like that offer very much. Pretty funny. Um, yeah. Um, so that's all. That's all good. Uh, really quick. Uh, basketball having its first um, fall official visit this week. Well, two actually, but they're not overlapping. Uh, Dylan Andrews is coming in today, Friday, for his two day, and then Mark Mitchell comes in Sunday. Um, this will be obviously Dylan Andrews, uh, UCLA's committed point guard, has never been on UCLA's campus, which is which is really interesting. Uh, from what I hear, he's going to make it to the they'll make it to the Fresno State game, so he's going to get the red carpet, and then Mark Mitchell comes in on Sunday. He uh, this will be his second official visit. Basketball players are allowed to take two: one in their junior year, and uh, another in their senior year. Which will start his official visit tour. Um, as we all know, it's between UCLA and Duke. He'll be he'll be in uh, at Duke for what do they call it? Is it Dukey Madness? What is it called? Um, yeah, he'll be there for that. Uh, generally, the trend right now is people believe he's leaning probably a little bit towards Duke. But Eric Bossy, twenty four sevens recruiting analyst, uh, director of recruiting nationally, said. He is. He cannot make the call yet. Uh, so that will be very interesting. That's uh, interesting. It's five star Mark Mitchell. He's power forward, big, big wing guy, uh, who's would be a key component to UCLA's twenty twenty two recruiting class. And that's just the beginning. Then next month they have a string of official visits. And as we all know, there just isn't a lot of talent on the West Coast. So. UCLA basketball recruiting has had to branch out and look national. And when you're recruiting nationally for UCLA, you're going up against a lot of programs in the East Coast, strong, you know, nationally recognized programs that have been on these kids locally for a lot longer than UCLA. So the official visit to UCLA is key. Hopefully they're coming from some snow-crusted town and they come out and in October it's beautiful and you know in los angeles so that's what we have to look forward to and of course basketball will start uh it's practice um it's practice for fall within about a week i think on the 24th or so probably by the end of next week so you still like basketball dave it's exciting yeah it's exciting but i don't feel as desperate as desperate to talk about it right now as i do in previous leads up to football seasons uh, because uh, football is actually good, you know. Wow, nice. things have changed. Things have changed. Before we ever did a broadcast during the summer, when we first get on the phone, you go, "Can we just talk about basketball?" This is what yeah. you'd say. This is Dave. Yeah. Can we just talk about? Uh, do we have to talk about football? That's what you would say to me. I know. Things I have know. changed, I, I, Dave. I would say that on air. I don't care. But now. <laughs> I'm a big football head again. I've always been a UCLA football fan. Always really liked Chip Kelly. I think he's really good. <laughs> Man, you uh, is there any way you could just be a professional troller? That's if, <laughs> is there any trolling company? You should start a trolling company. I think I'd be pretty good at it. I think yeah, I'd be okay. I at think it. you would because now you're trolling UCLA. And if you keep repeating what we've learned, 
<laughs> what we've learned in this era of, you know, in which we live, if you keep repeating something over and over and over, it becomes true. Well, it's so it's, I, th I think you should keep repeating that you've always been supportive and thought Chip Kelly was going to get it done at UCLA. You so should. 80% of people get it. And then there's like 20% of people who are real literalists. And they're like, no, you didn't. Why do you keep saying that? No, you didn't. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's the joke. That's that's the funny part is that, of course, I didn't. I was I was maybe leading the bandwagon of maybe this guy should be fired immediately. Uh, but so do that's you why think those people those people legitimately might not know? No, I mean, no, no. That I you're mean, trolling. Uh, the, they know the, the, you're the, trolling, and they're going to call you out because they're literalists. Yeah, yeah, no. I don't even think it's 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 both. So some of them might know I'm trolling, and they're just angry about it, um, which that's fine. That's a that's a I think that's a legitimate reaction to trolling. The other ones are ones who are like, uh, no, that's not true. Why are you trying to correct? Why are you trying to change the record? Um, where they're treating it as if I'm making literal statements, where they're treating it as if I'm making serious statements, when in fact I am poking fun at myself in a you know convoluted manner. You are really. You are. Yeah, no, I'm. 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 I'm really fundamentally. If you're going to be good at this, the number one person you've got to troll is yourself. Wow, that is profound. You need yeah. to put that on your Twitter at the top. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Wow, I want you to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you could, that that's a request because that's really profound. We should all live by that every day of our lives. It's a beautiful thing. All right. Okay. Well, Dave. that's it. I got nothing else. You got anything else? No, I'm done. All right. Well, for Tracy I'm Pearson, se seventeen Coronas right now. <laughs> <laughs> and get uh, and get nine and get nine hours of sleep. <laughs> seventeen Coronas and nine hours of sleep, everybody. All right. Uh, if Tracy. I drank seventeen Coronas, I would absolutely get nine hours of sleep. I think it wouldn't yeah. be good sleep. It would not be restful sleep. No, no. Uh, all right. For Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, and we'll talk to you again next time. Cheers. <laughs>